You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 80, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Ron Purser, Professor of Management at San Francisco State University and author of the viral article, Beyond McMindfulness, an eight-book centered around cultural criticisms of westernized mindfulness. You can find out more about Ron on his website at ronpurser.com. That's R-O-N-P-U-R-S-E-R.com. And check out his podcast, The Mindful Cranks Podcast. And head on over to our website at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about how to be more focused, productive, creative, and happy using technology. And sign up for our mailing list to receive a free guide on how to find balance and manage your technology use with mindfulness. I'm extremely pleased to welcome Ron Purser to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In the interview that you're about to hear with Ron Purser, you'll hear him talk about some of the history of mindfulness as it went from part of traditional Buddhist teaching and practice to something being taught in the West. And I don't want to give away too much of the interview, but when we spoke, it reminded me of what I know about the history of uh, martial arts, particularly the uh, art that I've studied the most, a style of karate called Shotokan Karate. I'll just share it with you briefly here, which is that uh, originally a karate was uh, not even called karate. It was an Okinawan art. And there was an Okinawan named Gichin Funakoshi, who became the founder of Shotokan. He had given a demonstration that the Japanese government, the mainland Japanese government, I believe the emperor, saw Funakoshi's demonstration and was very impressed with it, had not seen this Okinawan martial art yet and wanted Funakoshi to teach it to the Japanese. And to make a long story short, Funakoshi developed Shotokan Karate, or at least part of what he did was to develop it as a system that could be taught by the Japanese government to Japanese school children. And so he simplified it, took out a lot of dangerous techniques, introduced the grading system with all the different grades, and in many ways adapted it to be something that could be taught essentially as a kind of physical education within the Japanese school system. Taking away, at least within the school system, many people now think a lot of the elements of it that uh, were part of it when it was more of a traditional art in Okinawa and more of a complete system of self-defense and of a way of life, really, as originally taught, as it transitioned more into a practical method of self-defense that could be taught to the masses. And then later on in the 20th century, or developed at least some, some schools of it, developed more into something that was taught primarily for tournament-style fighting. So I think it's interesting how arts practices can develop when they are brought to the masses. And this, so this is an example, it wasn't just in the US, it was originally in Japan. Karate did then further develop when it came to the US, but the point being, it's not just the West necessarily that can uh, take practices and develop them in this way. But maybe this will resonate with you a little bit when you hear Ron talk about his concerns about uh, the, the recent development of mindfulness in the West. Hope you find that interesting, and I think you're really going to enjoy this quite different conversation with Ron Purser about McMindfulness. 
Hi, Ron, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Well, hello, and thank you for inviting me, Robert. Oh, you're welcome. I'm really glad to have you here because I think you come at mindfulness with a bit of a different perspective than many of the people I've had on the podcast before, and and then many of the other people who are teaching, talking, writing about mindfulness, at least in, in the U.S., which is where both of us are. I wonder if you could start just by telling people a little bit about your own personal history with mindfulness. Where do you come to it from? Well, to, to be honest with you, I really didn't know much about mindfulness or even practice mindfulness meditation as it's known now until around 2010, 2011. But my practice of Buddhist meditation goes back to about 1980. Even, even before that, I, I started just kind of exploring and dabbling in various spiritualities, uh, kind of a, sort of as a uh, tourist, you know, spiritual tourist. And uh, when I was an undergraduate, I eventually uh, landed up in Northern California. By accident, I kind of stumbled upon an institute in Berkeley. And this institute was called the Ningma Institute, started by a uh, Tibetan Lama, actually yes. the first Tibetan Buddhist Lama to come to the United States. His name is Tarthang Tuku. I started taking courses there and workshops and retreats and studied a particular teaching of his, which I still do. And that, that sort of really kind of turned me in a new direction. I was actually kind of a poor college student. Yeah. Uh, I was having a lot of fun in college, and I, I got really serious, and uh, I noticed how it did provide a lot of benefits in terms of more grounding, more focus, more concentration, all those sorts of things that we all know about. Um, yes. And I won't, make a, I won't make a long story of this, but... Uh, I've uh, practiced a Zen at one time because when I went to graduate school, I had to move back to Cleveland, Ohio. And at the time, there were no Buddhist centers except one, mm. which was uh, actually an ethnic Japanese Buddhist center known as the Buddhist Churches of America, uh, which is one of the earliest Buddhist organizations in the United States, as many people don't know. It's mm. been around a long time, like the, I think the early 19th, early 20th century. But the teacher there was from the Pure Land School, which is interesting to note because I'll just, it's kind of a sidebar. Yeah, that's okay. But uh, the, the Pure Land School doesn't meditate. They don't practice any form of meditation. They do chanting. Okay. Now, I didn't study that. But the teacher, when he came to the United States in 1960 as a missionary, he landed up at Shunru Suzuki Center in San Francisco, who was a Soto Zen priest. Mm-hmm. And that's where he learned Zen. And so for Westerners, he would teach Zen to us. So that, that was my sort of primary practice then. Eventually, I went to Chicago to teach at Loyola and then finally found a job here in San Francisco in 1997, where I teach now at San Francisco State. But throughout that time, uh, I've practiced various Tibetan uh, Buddhist practices, but primarily have, and also I've been ordained as a in the Korean uh, Zen tradition, in the Taigo order, through another teacher. But yeah, I've been a, a student of Buddhism going back to 1980. Well, first, thanks for letting us know about that history. And it's a good reminder that we often, and I'm guilty of this, although I try to be mindful of it, of using the word mindfulness to refer generally to meditation or Buddhism when it's not. Well, that's it's, a good point. 
That's an excellent point because what's happened, I think, now is we now see mindfulness as synonymous with Buddhism. <laughs> but there's a long history, uh, which we might get into later. But Buddhism itself is not a monolithic entity. There's so many schools and traditions of Buddhism, uh, and they all have different practices that focus on that make some more center than others. So, yeah, I think that that's a common misconception. Yeah. So thank, you know, thanks for reminding us of that, that mindfulness is only even one aspect of Buddhism, that it's, it's not everything within Buddhism, and that there's many different schools of Buddhism that take different approaches. And of course, there's other kinds of meditation outside of Buddhism, which we have to remember. It's, not, it's, it's become Absolutely. the most prominent in the U.S. in recent years, although it wasn't true in right. the 60s. You know, I think transcendental meditation was much, much yeah. bigger back then. Yeah, well, meditation uh, in the 60s was seen as a uh, fringe hippie, uh, yeah. I think. Yeah. A woo-woo, woo-woo hippie, something hippies did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Beatnik, beatniks before that, you know, right. that's when it first kind of took off in the early, well, the late 1950s. Yeah. I mean, so m more broadly, what you said just brings to mind uh, what I was most interested in, in having you here to talk about, which is, you know, you've really tried to raise a, a red flag about how the ways in which mindfulness is being taught in the West, in the U.S. in particular, is, I don't want to put the words into your mouth, but it's being taught in a very specific way that is maybe giving people who are new to it and are only being exposed to mindfulness in this particular way, it might be harmful. I mean, uh, so let, let me ask you to, to, to give people an initial flavor of what your concerns are. Now that mindfulness has become so mainstream and has, has spread so widely, rapidly in recent years, what, but, what is your you basic know, concern? Well, I guess maybe I'll start with the more contemporary phenomena that's been called the mindfulness revolution. It's hard to say when it really kind of started, but in the media, it certainly became very uh, prominent and popular probably around 2010 and 2014, the Time magazine uh, yeah. published a special issue called The Mindful Revolution with a photo of a youthful uh, blonde uh, woman blissing out with her eyes closed. And it was mm -hmm. a special issue. But that took me by surprise, to, to be honest with you. I, I was really baffled by how it became so popular so quickly because for several millennia, 2,600 years, it's been basically Buddhist meditation and it's been a spiritual path. And, and suddenly I saw it morphing into a self-help technique mm -hmm. that the hype, the media hype, but also scientists involved are part of the problem in a way, that it morphed into this widely touted sort of panacea, which if you go to Amazon and look at uh, how many books there are with either the term mindful or mindfulness, it's a stunningly long list. Yes. You know, anything from, from mindful sex to uh, mindful dog owners or uh, <laughs> yeah. mindful finance. Uh, and when I started looking at, like, I saw an article in Bloomberg once that said, if, uh, if you want to make a killing on Wall Street, you need to meditate. Yeah. You know, so Goldman yeah. Sachs, uh, head, hedge fund managers were, you know, now being taught mindfulness. And then then even the U.S. military has uh, adopted it. So when that happened, I was like kind of stunned. And the more I looked into it, I realized that 
wow, it's become like this burgeoning industry of like $1.5 billion industry mm-hmm. where it's become popular even at uh, the World Economic Forum in Davos, which is one-tenth of the 1% that show yes. up there. Yes. So I said, you know, okay, it's become a fashionable, marketable trend. So that was one aspect that concerned me in a way because it was kind of counter everything I learned in, in, in terms of, you know, what was the purpose or aim of, of mindfulness? Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of kind of devolved or evolved into an instrumental technique. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's one way of putting it, uh, a, a technique or a tool. And when you instrumentalize something, then you're able to use it for utilitarian purposes, which Maybe another way to to contextualize this is when you extract a practice such as mindfulness and turn it into an instrumental technique, Mm -hmm. it becomes in a way a value neutral uh, tool and uh, ethically neutral tool that then can be applied in in different ways. And when I started to see it being applied in corporations, in particular, because I'm a management professor, I'm a professor of management, I have a, a lot of experience in that world. And I used to do corporate consulting, which I quit because I Mm -hmm. became very disenchanted by that whole world. But when I saw it being deployed in companies like Google, that's when I really said, okay, I I really have to study this phenomena. I really have to learn what's actually going on. So that led to my critique. Uh, It first started, published a short article in the Huffington Post that went viral with my colleague, David Loy, who is a socially engaged Buddhist teacher. And that was called Beyond McMindfulness. And the term McMindfulness is not, some, not, not a term that I coined. I want to give credit to Miles Neal, Dr. Miles Neal, who is in New York City. He's a Buddhist teacher and also a, uh, a psychotherapist. That term really stuck with me and, and it became a cultural meme and kind of unfroze the dialogue or unfroze the way we started to think about mindfulness and that it wasn't a cure-all, it wasn't a cure-all for it. You know, one of the things that bothered me is that mindfulness was good for everyone and good for everything. Mm-hmm. And that to me is where, you know, we have to kind of take a step back and say, really, is it? <laughs> So that's part of, you know, my, my impulse, I guess. I guess that's a long-winded response no, to that's helpful. Question. And, you know, I want to ask, there's a couple of basic questions that come to mind for the benefit of people listening who very innocently maybe have only been exposed to McMindfulness or what you'd call McMindfulness. Maybe they've never been exposed to it within its broader context. You know, they've only been exposed to it as what you've called an instrumentalized tool for reducing stress or being more focused. So, again, this might seem very basic to you, but for those people, can you tell them what mindfulness is or has been for you or what it is within the broader context of traditional Buddhist teachings where it isn't just an instrumentalized tool? Yeah, and not not well, in. I know you can't do that easily in sixty seconds, but I'm just saying there are probably people who don't who would not have any idea of what it might possibly be if it's not just a tool for achieving something like that. Okay, well, I can give you the the classic response, the traditional sure. Buddhist response, but when I do so, I'm not doing so with the intent of saying this is superior because I really don't dismiss even 
the contemporary forms of therapeutic clinical mindfulness that people may be using, that people may be receiving into, you know, therapeutic benefits. So I'm not really trying to defend a Buddhist uh, position here, but to contextualize it historically in a very simplistic way. Sure. First of all, mindfulness, where does it come from? It, it actually derives from early Buddhism, a very probably the very earliest form of, uh, of Buddhism, which is called the Theravada tradition, the first tradition within Buddhism, where in that case, mindfulness was a meditative practice that monks uh, engaged in. And those monks were practicing mindfulness actually as part of a uh, integral spiritual path of development, of cultivating their spiritual development. And it was, uh, it was one factor within what's known as the Eightfold Noble Path within Buddhism. There are eight factors within that path, and mindfulness was the seventh factor. So some of those factors were cultivating ethical and moral training, cultivating ethical restraint from engaging in harmful actions either towards oneself or others. And then the other trainings were in, in insight and wisdom and insight and, and wisdom into the nature of reality itself. So this was a, a spiritual path of liberation within a context, and we're talking about uh, 500 BC, you know, the time of the Buddha, all the way to, let's say, 1000 AD, when the Theravada tradition was at its height. But monks were renunciants. They were actually turning away from all the the normal desires of, of lay people. Their whole aim was actually to attain nirvana, which means liberation from the cycle of uh, birth and death. So it was a complete sort of abandonment of a desire, uh, greed, hatred, ill will, all the sort of negative mental states that uh, characterize a lot of our lives. And uh, it was a very, very disciplined uh, community, which was called the Sangha, a community of monks that practiced mm -hmm. together. So that's a long story, but there is a specific practice within that tradition based on a, a sacred text called the Satipatthana Sutra, which is translated as the Foundations of Mindfulness Training. And it was a, an instruction manual, basically, on how to practice mindfulness within that tradition. And if you look at those instructions, they look very different from what you see in modern mindfulness. So what's happened is, over a long period of time, we see the mainstreaming of mindfulness in the Western world. Uh, and that comes actually uh, out of another historical unfolding that occurred in the, in the late 19th and early 20th century in Southeast Asia, particularly Burma or Myanmar as we know it today. At that time, the British were occupying Burma. The British were threatening actually the culture of Buddhism in that country. Mm -hmm. We had Christian missionaries that were there trying to convert people to Christianity. So the Buddhist elders in Burma saw the handwriting on the wall and said, oh boy, we're going to be, we're going to be dead meat if we don't do something here. And you have to realize that most monks, even monks, did not meditate in most Buddhist schools. Mm -hmm. It was only very elite monks, and especially in this tradition. And certainly Asian lay people did not meditate. They gave, they gave alms, they gave donations, they supported the monks. Uh, it was called merit, you know, dana, 
that, you mm-hmm. know, uh, donations. And they were not really meditating. I mean, and so the, the political resistance that occurred was these elder monks said, we have to open meditation up to the populace. We have to provide them a very kind of easier form of meditation that can, you know, it was kind of a nationalizing mm-hmm. way to gain sort of a nationalistic identity yeah. and a way to protect uh, their tradition. And it was successful. There were a couple of monks who led that movement. And then you have mad, you had mass meditation going on mm. uh, among lay people. And that kept, that kept going and so by the 60s, when you see people like Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg and a few others, uh, Joel Goldstein, they were in, the, I think one of them were in the Peace Corps. I think Jack Cornfield actually uh, ordained and became a, a monk. But that's what they learned. They learned it from them. Mm-hmm. And so they already learned a, a, what's a, a much more modern form of mindfulness that mm-hmm. had stripped away many of the other sort of uh, ritualistic, devotional yes. practices. Uh, a lot of the textual and doctrinal practices were kind of stripped away. And so by the time it came back to the United mm-hmm. States, then it became sort of psychologized. It became mm-hmm. even more modern and more palatable to Westerners. And that is uh, a trend in, in, in historians called Buddhist modernism. So once insight meditation, Vipassana meditation started, John Kabat-Zinn was actually a, a dedicated uh, attendee at the Insight Meditation Center in Bari, Mass. And that's where he was learning Vipassana. And he had an epiphany on one of the 10-day retreats. And he said, oh, I, I think I may be able to, to adapt this for clinical populations. You know, people mm-hmm. are suffering from chronic stress and chronic pain. And that's exactly what he did. He opened up... The, was at that time was called the Stress Reduction Center in the hot bottom of the basement of University of Mass Hospital. And then he uh, eventually renamed it as Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, MBSR. Yeah. So again, it went through another phase of medicalization. And so what we end up now in terms of what we're, what we're seeing with mindfulness is something very different than its origins and with different purposes. And it's been repurposed, you could say. So when it comes to MBSR, it was repurposed for serving medical patients, uh, mm-hmm. people that uh, doctors couldn't help. And so the doctors would send them to the MBSR classes, whether it was chronic back pain or whatever it may be, stress, anxiety. So that started in 1979. So you go from 1979 to like 2010, 2015, and over that period of time, you know, it be, it's becoming more mainstream. The scientists start getting on board to mm-hmm. study it. And once the scientists got on board to start doing clinical studies, efficacy studies, yeah, then you scientized it. It became right. more, more legitimate. And that whole Buddhist context and the whole sort of Buddhist roots then could be erased and sort of it became decontextualized in that sense yeah. and detraditionalized. And then you end up with a clinical technique or a productivity technique, if it's used in, in corporations, that has no basically ethical or moral commitments. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe not with the hospital clinical. Sure. That's being, you know, at least you have the Hippocratic Oath there that kind of protect, uh, you know, some ethical constraints. Very helpful to hear about that history. I mean, it sounds like you're, you're t- the overall thread 
you're drawing here for us is one of pulling mindfulness more and more out of its broader traditional context, distilling it down more and more into some specific practical use. You know, the analogy that came to my mind was you going from a whole plant that you might eat for its medicinal purposes to extracting a chemical from it that you put into a pill, right? And swallow out of context. So that be fair enough kind of analogy. And the concern that often arises there is that the whole plant, you know, is something that we evolved with. And when you eat it whole, you know, it, it integrates with your body in a certain way. And that when you extract it just for a specific purpose, even if the chemical constituent, you know, may arguably have some true practical benefit, you know, there's a whole range of other side effects of that that you may not be, be taking, taking into account. Yeah, that's correct. And some scholars call that the process of mystification, you know, mystifying its, uh, its origins. And, uh, and that, uh, yeah, that's kind of what happened. And I think that once it got out of the hospital and once it got out of the clinic, then we see a, a kind of an acceleration of its commodification, how it's been instrumentalized, because spiritual entrepreneurs, uh, then find ways to sell it in different ways to different audiences, uh, corporations, schools, stock traders, governments, military, you know, it becomes a hot commodity in that way. But I think it's the refashioning it, refashioning it to accommodate to the needs of the market that became more troubling to me over time. So market friendly that I started saying, well, is this, is this tool that's called mindfulness actually a, a form of enabling, especially in corporations, it's like, is it enabling corporations to just continue generating toxic workplaces without having to take any responsibility for the toxic workplaces that people are in? And yeah. then just like delivering them this tool and technique to help them de-stress so that they can cope and accommodate to, mm-hmm. to those kinds of uh, questionable uh, cultures. And that to me is is what's most problematic in in some respects because it takes the ball off corporations to take responsibility for the stresses that they're creating and it, it kind of deflects attention away from examining the more systemic causes uh and structural injustices that are out there mm-hmm. and by p- placing the burden and the onus of responsibility just on the individual mm-hmm. to say Oh, you're stressed out. You know, you're disengaged from work. Uh, we've got a remedy for you. And here it is. Uh, yeah. So here's saying a couple of things. Uh, you know, tell me if I've got this right. One is by separating out and no longer teaching mindfulness in connection with the ethical framework, you're running the risk that you might be enabling people to just engage in unethical behavior more efficiently or effectively. You know, that's one. And the other, you mentioned social, that, that by making this into, as we all often do here in the U.S., you're making this into an individual problem with an individualized solution. You're extracting mindfulness from the social context in which it was traditionally uh, taught. And maybe taught is even the wrong word, conveyed and passed down, which was much more social in Eastern countries. Yeah, your first point, yes. What you end up is with a very reductionistic tool that, you know, I think the most egregious example uh, of that that I talk about in, in my book is how the United States military has uh, taken what, what was a clinical mm-hmm. application 
stripped it down even more Mm -hmm. and uses it to teach soldiers in pre-deployment training. I'm not adverse or I'm not, obviously, I'm completely in favor of using any kind of form of mindfulness for people that are suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome. But we're talking about before soldiers are even deployed to Afghanistan or Iraq at the time when that was going on. They're given a, a very short course training in, I wouldn't even call it mindfulness. I, would, mm-hmm. I think it should be called attention performance enhancement training because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's what it is. But that just shows you what happens when you decontextualize it and uh, strip it out of its uh, ethical context. And then it could be repurposed in, in these kind of very uh, nefarious ways. And uh, so that's, that's problematic. And the second, second point the social dimension. I think that's important because now we see mindfulness is a do-it-yourself technique, you know, right, a DIY right. technique that you can do uh, on your own, which is, you know, it, it may provide some short-term benefit, but it doesn't take into account that one of the, uh, I don't know if I want to use the word aim or goal, but outcomes or uh, fruits, uh, maybe mm-hmm. that's a better word since you're using the plant analogy. Yeah. Uh, one of the fruits uh, of, of practicing Buddhist meditation, uh, which may include mindfulness, but many other practices as well, uh, was the cultivation of uh, boundless compassion and seeing into the true nature of oneself, which actually in Buddhism is uh, seen as an illusory phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't about cultivating, attaining one's desires in a better right, way right. through a technique such as mindfulness, but actually uh, seeing through the illusory nature of the self so that you're not as selfish and you're not as uh, self-centered. Yeah. Uh, you're more open to the suffering of, of the whole world, all sentient beings, whether animals and other people and cultivating this kind of boundless universal compassion. And so that's kind of been flipped into a self-help technique that basically helps you become a better test taker, whether you're taking your graduate record exams or whether you're a hedge fund trader trying to be sharper, uh, more focused and get a mental edge. So you could see there's quite a difference there between those two. Yeah, I mean, there's something which is, uh, you know, I know you talk about mindfulness apps. Uh, there's something about mindfulness apps. I think there's a, they're a double-edged sword. Uh, and I, I think that some of the people developing them are, are really thinking and trying hard to develop them in increasingly better ways to overcome some of these problems. But one of them is, you know, the default is that they're apps that you use on your own, sitting in your room as an individual. Right. Uh, rather than yeah. with a teacher or a community, uh, you're engaging mm-hmm. in them individually. And so there is a real risk or tendency for it to, as you talk about extensively in the book, you know, develop an overly individualistic self focus as a result of that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, that's part of it. Yes, that's part of it. I, I'll just relate a, uh, a little anecdote because I was on a radio show last year, right about this time in our local public radio, a talk show where people called in and asked questions. And I had a, a father of a son call in and he said, you know, um, my 18 year old son's been using this app. Uh, and, and since he's been using it, he's become 
much more isolated and much more self-centered. And Mm. so, I mean, that's anecdotal, but I think the other issue is that what's on these apps is is quite superficial in terms of uh, the actual Mm -hmm. instructions. And Mm -hmm. there's been some recent peer-reviewed research in in some journals that have been taking a closer look at the claims of some of these companies that some of the major uh, uh, meditation app companies and uh, looking at the uh, the rigor of, of their the mm-hmm. studies that they're they're citing, and they're very very uh, questionable. There's a recent study that I was just looking at today that was much more rigorous. Uh, it used an active control group, which a lot of meditation and mindfulness studies don't use. And the active control group was what they called a sham meditation exercise where they just told people to keep their eyes closed and that was it. They thought they were meditating. And so when you compare the use of the meditation app to the sham group, there was absolutely very few differences between the two. It's too detailed to go into, but um, you know, I think apps, uh, they sort of offer a way to quickly recharge and to jump back into uh, what you were doing, whether, you know, so you know, I, I, you know, we have to contextualize this too. Is that the whole wellness industry too is a four billion dollar industry, and you know, these apps are part of that. You know, they kind of fall under that um, umbrella. But I think the, the the crucial point is that again, they kind of assume that the stresses that people are experiencing. I talk about the privatization of stress, mm-hmm. and that's kind of a dominant narrative. That and a lot of the mindfulness teachers kind of use this trope that you know stress is all inside our head, and that's that's kind of a narrative that again puts the burden just on individuals mm-hmm. to to deal with that stress, and and apps kind of play into that that narrative in a way. You hear a lot of that in the rhetoric, you know, neurohacking and brain hacking, and and one of the reasons why that's problematic. Because we have a flawed notion that mindfulness is in the head as well. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness is, you know, that's why we study the brain of meditators. And we have this kind of image that mindfulness is some sort of private individual mm-hmm. activity that's located in the brain, that it changes the brain. So, but mindfulness is not just in the brain, it's, it's the whole embodied social being. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not just some sort of private theater of one's individual individual mind. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's sending the wrong message, this idea that you just you just have to train your brain and happiness is a skill. And and that what that does is kind of takes it kind of clouds or covers up other explanatory narratives for the stresses that we experience in our society. The stresses of individual, I mean, the stresses of uh, injustice and mm. gross inequities that we're seeing how they're exposed now with COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter. We're starting to say, oh, you know, some people suffer a lot more than us. And it's not because they're not mindful enough. Right. They're not managing their, uh, oh, they're not regulating their emotions. Well, maybe there's a reason why they're not yeah. regulating their emotions. Right. It's you know, not when, just an when, individual problem. Right. Yeah. And, and, and this ties in, again, I had to bring this in. It ties into a, a much deeper ideological 
ethos of our society. It's based on an ideology of neoliberalism. It's a political economic philosophy, but it's turned into a uh, social philosophy that we are responsible unto ourselves. In other words, we're fully responsible to take care of ourselves as, as atomized, separate individuals. And we don't need social support. We don't need mm-hmm. safety nets. We don't need student loan debt forgiveness. Mm-hmm. We, don't, uh, we don't need health care that's free. We don't, you know, we don't need that because we're strong individuals. Right. You know, we can, and that's based on the, 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 the ideas of the free market. You know, yeah. free market will solve all our problems. And so you're free to choose, you know, uh, as an individual, you're free to choose. And if, if you're not successful, well, then that's your fault because you didn't work hard enough. Right, right, right. And, right. and so that whole social political context is where mindfulness is embedded. And that it's, it's kind of absorbing that mm. as its cultural default. Yeah. Those shape the way people interpret these practices, the way they use them, maybe unknowingly or unwittingly. And that explains, uh, I think, why mindfulness has become a $1.5 billion industry, too. Because it's quite compatible with that message and with those kind of neoliberal values. So when we when we reduce mindfulness to banal self help technique just for coping and adjusting, you know, to society, then we've lost its radical potential. Can you tell people from your experience again for those people who haven't had any other experience of mindfulness than what you just described? What else could it be? (laughs) <laughs> than what you said. Because I think, you know, I, I, I see your point that when people from all of their upbringing and exposure within our culture to this way of seeing the individual and themselves, it would make it easy or to be predicted that people would see mindfulness in this individualized way, teach it, promote it in this individualized way, but also have a difficulty perhaps even imagining what else it could be than that. Well, we need a broader scope, broader focus. So we need a commitment to think much more holistically, you could say, about what mental well-being means. And it's not just an individualistic problem. Let's, let's start there. But I think what we lose sight of is we've lost sight of our critical intelligence and mm-hmm. our capacity for inquiry into the causes and conditions of suffering and stress that we feel. So simply meditating, it's, it's good, you know, it's mm-hmm. therapeutic, but it's not getting at the why do we continually feel dissatisfied? Why do we continually feel that we're not good enough or that we're lacking something? These are much deeper existential questions, yeah. which just uh, paying attention to your breath will not solve or just the, uh, regulating your emotions will not solve you. These are much deeper structural questions, structural questions, not just at the social and political and societal level, but also the structure of our human being. In other words, I know I sound a bit abstract, but the structuring of our experience of how, how you could say our experience of, as embodied beings mm-hmm. in space and time. Because we, if we think about these facets of human experience, we all share a human body, mm-hmm. uh, which is a vehicle, and we all share language, which is also a vehicle. 
and we all have a mind. Mm. And these three uh, vehicles are not really examined in the mindfulness movement, uh, except maybe the body in the terms of uh, mindfulness of breathing and calming right. down the body. But I'm talking about something radically, radically different that has to do with opening up uh, really deep questions about who we are as human beings, what we're meant to be, how we can be in a different way that is not destructive to either ourselves or others. And that may not be something we could find in a technique because techniques, we're, we're putting our kind of like deferring, like we're, just let it, we're thinking a technique is going to solve our problems. I know you mentioned earlier that one of your concerns is about how superficial a lot of the, the mindfulness teaching is, particularly in the apps. Uh, you know, I've seen the same thing. It seems like 95% of what's out there is very introductory. There's nothing wrong with it. From my, it's right. not like it's incorrect on its own. It's just that it's very introductory. It doesn't take people past the superficial introduction. Would you agree, I, this is my point of view, that, mm-hmm. that what people are being taught is helpful as the beginning of a foundation for developing some mindfulness that they might be able to build on to get to the kinds of things you're talking about, but that the way it's yeah. being taught isn't enough for that. Yeah, I think it's potentially helpful as yeah. a, they say, the gateway, right? <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. But on the other hand, if it stops there and right. people say, well, I guess this is what mindfulness is. You know, yeah, I'm practicing, yeah. I'm doing it. Then it kind of sells it short. In yes. Sense, you know. And I, I, you know, it's kind of an irony when you talk about apps. I have to say this, that <laughs> it's, it's kind of an irony. You have to turn to your smartphone to de-stress from the source that's yeah. stressing you to smartphone. It's kind of strange. It um, is. And I think that because, world, you know, they're, they're yeah. tracking you. They're tracking you like any other app. They're, they're of getting your data and all that. So uh, world yeah. full of ironies, you know, that we're now living in with social isolation I have found, I've tried to approach it with balance, you know, turning to the technology now is one of the best ways I can find to connect with other people. It's how I'm speaking with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's very ironic. Food for a lot of thought. And, you know, I'm doing my best to be careful not to uh, over rely on on the technology and to be careful that I've, I've been engaged in a lot of conversations with people about this, that as it becomes more possible to get back in physical touch with people, that we remain mindful and not, not just continue maybe the habit we've developed during this time of so, so social isolation of turning to the device, you know, even more than we did before. Because I think it could be easy to stay on autopilot and stay stuck to the phone even more as if social isolation were required, even when it no longer is. Yeah. Yeah, No, I sense that too. I I have the same feelings that you do on that. Yeah. It's going to take some effort, some conscious effort to maybe to, to re-engage face to face and in other ways with groups, given that the technology has such a strong pull. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree completely with you on that point. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. This is a very rich topic. You know, we, we've only touched the surface on it here. Yeah. I wonder in drawing to a close for people who, you know, I'm thinking maybe of people who have listened to this, uh, who are, who, whose only exposure to mindfulness has been in the kind of ways we've talked about. And maybe their interest has been piqued and they want to dive into uh, 
these practices more deeply, learn about the, the tradition or other, other ways in which they could practice more deeply? What would you recommend to them? Uh, how can they get in touch with you or learn more about this and connect with you and other people? Oh, sure. If they want to connect with me, I, I have a, a website, uh, just ronperser.com, and you could send me an email. And personally, I'm uh, taking courses uh, at a place in Berkeley called Dharma College, which is, uh, also has online courses now because of COVID. If you want to learn about uh, other Buddhist centers, you can like check out Tricycle Magazine, which is a, a magazine. And in the back, it has a whole kind of index of state by state. You can look at different centers and their websites and everything. But, you know, I'm not trying to say, oh, you know, you know, you have to go to a Buddhist center now. You know, I'm not I'm not saying that at all. But there's modern stoicism now that's become popular where people are teaching stoic philosophy uh, in a modern way. Contemplative Christianity has has a contemplative tradition, right, where uh, centering prayer. Uh, I took a course on that a long time ago. So uh, I think that's probably a good place to start. If people want to contact me, uh, I always respond to, to emails. So that would be a good way to, to do it. Great. Well, great. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed the conversation, Ron. And thanks for being on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was uh, quite, a, quite a nice conversation. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Bye now. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plopkin. And today's guest, Ron Purser, author of Mick Mindfulness and host of the Mindful Cranks podcast. You can find out more about Ron on his website at ronpurser.com. That's R-O-N-P-U-R-S-E-R.com. And if you like today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel and rate and review and share the episode with your friends. We'd really appreciate it. And don't forget to also check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com to get free and practical tips for beating digital distraction and for being more productive, focused, creative, and happy with your technology. And right now, if you go to our webpage and sign up for our mailing list, you'll receive a free guide on how to manage your technology use and achieve balance with your tech. I'm Robert Plotkin, and please join us next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast.